We're coming to the end of the book of Habakkuk. We've been preaching in this book for several weeks. The theme has been living by faith in a world of darkness. In fact, next week, Chris Gorman, one of the elders of our church, who's just a man of God, loves God's word, and is a great preacher, will actually be preaching the last message of Habakkuk, which is really part two of this sermon. But before we jump in, what I want to do is just remind us of the context of this book. So Habakkuk is in Jerusalem. And he's crying out to God because he looks over all of Jerusalem and he sees wickedness and he sees violence. He sees the orphans and the widows being taken advantage of. He sees pagan idols just littering the landscape. Uh, wickedness is preferred over righteousness. And so he comes to God and he says, God, do you see this? God, what are you going to do about this? And so God responds and says, I'm going to send the Babylonians and they're going to come and destroy Israel because of the wickedness that's in the city. And so Babylon now is a bloodthirsty, ruthless, savage nation that destroys and enslaves all they encounter. And so the present situation that Habakkuk sees is bad. But the future situation is even worse. I mean, when Habakkuk comes, they will, uh, they will bring death desperation, starvation, and slavery. They will destroy Jerusalem. They will bring down the temple. Everything they know, everything they have, everything they love will be gone. But there's hope. In chapter 2, God says that he will one day bring judgment upon Babylon. And we know that will happen in 70 years. And when that happens, God will once again bring Israel out of exile back to the promised land. But what is Israel supposed to do in the meantime? How are they supposed to respond to this message of, okay, there's hope in the future, but there's suffering now. What are they to do? And so in chapter 2, verse 4, God said, the righteous shall live by his faith. And when we were back in that passage, we saw, we saw that it means to trust in God's future grace. That's what it means to live by faith. Trust in God's future grace. Trust in the promises of God. God is saying, trust what I have said. In the future, I will bring grace and bring you out of exile. You must know that I have not forgotten about you. I am faithful. You can trust in me. Now, trusting in God's future grace is not, um, is not just positive thinking. It's not baselessness. It's not like trying to grab a cloud, something without any substance. Uh, and so what we need to know is the first step in trusting God's future grace is that we are to rightly think about God's past grace. If we're going to trust in future grace, we must remember God's past grace, what he has done for us, and how he has revealed himself in the, uh, in the past. And so that's what Habakkuk does in this passage. In fact, today we're going to be looking at past grace. Next week, when Chris Gorman preaches, we'll be looking at future grace. And so Habakkuk is going to show that if we are to stand firm in the face of pain, of suffering, of trials, the way we do that is to rightly think about who God is, to bridle our minds and our emotions and to align them with the truth of God's word. And so that is what we're going to see today. But before we jump in, let me just ask you, what is it that you trust in? When life unravels, when things begin to fall apart, when you face suffering and trials and pain, what is your hope? 
Now, perhaps you are, you are a fatalist and you're one of those who just says, well, life just happens. You know, you just kind of deal with the punches. Nothing we can do about it. Or maybe you're one of those who says, well, you just got to suck it up. If life throws you a lemon, just make lemonade. You just depend upon your strength and your abilities. Or maybe you're one of those and you've been hurt so many times. You've experienced so much pain that you've just said, you know, I'm just going to detach myself from everything. And you figure that if you just don't own anything, care about anything, or love anyone, then it just won't hurt when, when trials and pain and suffering comes your way. But I want to encourage you today, there is hope. There is hope in God's Word. When we come into God's Word, we come into a God who is mighty, who is powerful, who is glorious, who is gracious and just and merciful and loving. He is always faithful to his promises. And so I want to encourage you to, to look at God as we come into his word today. Behold who he is. See why he is trustworthy. See what he has done for us. How he is faithful and how he is our hope in every situation. And so what I want to do is we're going to read chapter 3 verses 1 through 16. So I want to invite you to stand as we read. We stand here at Timberline uh, because we believe God's word comes inspired by God with his full authority. And so we do so as a means of honoring God and reminding ourselves of the beauty and significance of this word. So chapter 3 verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to uh, Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction. The tents of the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers of your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The, the raging waters swept on. The deep, the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come to you now. 
And Father, I pray, give us wisdom today as we look at your word. Lord, as we look at your past grace, as we look at how you have revealed your glory and your might and your love, how you have displayed your grace and your mercy, strengthen us today. Strengthen our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would fall more in love with you, and I pray that we would have a greater hunger and desire for your word today because of your message. May your spirit work within our hearts. Mold us and transform us more into your image. And if there is anyone who is hearing this message that does not yet know you, they've not yet trusted in your grace, Lord, I pray that they would trust in you today. I pray that in your word they would see your beauty and your glory that they would taste your goodness in your word today. In your name, Jesus, amen. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is that Habakkuk desires God's glory more than his comfort. Uh, um, the book begins, if you remember, the book of Habakkuk begins with Habakkuk bringing these complaints uh, before God, saying, God, why is this happening? What are you doing? Where are you at? But now as we come to the end of the book, no longer is he bringing questions to God. The tone has changed and he is in submission to God as he prays to God and he praises God. And notice in Habakkuk uh, verse 2 here of chapter 3, he says, O Lord, do I fear. Here's Habakkuk. He's saying, I fear you, God, more than the Babylonians. As he thinks back about who God is, he says, God, more than the chariots and the armies and the sword and the spear and the bow and the arrow of, of this nation of Babylon, I fear you. He says, I trust in you more than anything that Babylon can do to us. And we see this throughout this passage. Um, look first in verse 2. He says, uh, in the midst of your years, revive it. In the midst uh, of the years, make it known. He's literally saying, God, do what you've promised. Go ahead and bring the judgment upon Israel. I know that we've been faithless. I know that we've been wicked. And then he says, just, just remember your mercy. Remember, remember your promise that you've given us and bring us back out of exile. Now, now the fact that he is trusting in God and that he says, God, you are far more glorious, far more beautiful, far more powerful than anything Babylon can do. That doesn't mean that he is not also uh, with trepidation of what is going to happen. In fact, look down at verse 16. This is a great verse because Habakkuk's not stoic now to say, well, God's will be done and I'm not scared. But notice, he says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Here we have Habakkuk is literally shaking as he thinks about the destruction, about the slavery, about the pain, about the suffering, about the onslaught of what Babylon is going to do to Israel. Let me just ask you, have you ever experienced that kind of pain? Have you ever experienced that turmoil? Do you know that kind of suffering, which rottenness just enters your bones, you feel weak all over, your lips quiver and tremble? Now, I know that some of you do. I know that some of you, uh, I know many of your stories, some of you experience great pain and great suffering. Some of you have received that phone call in the middle of the night, which forever changed everything how you live. 
Some of you have, have experienced just the brokenness and strained relationships and the damage that that has caused and the suffering that brings to you and to family and to others. Some of you have known what it is to be without anything and total need and total desperation and feeling absolutely hopeless. I know that some of you have gone through immense suffering. And if you haven't, that it very well may happen in the future because we know in this world in which sin characterizes this world, there is brokenness and there's pain and there's trials. But notice the end of verse, verse 16. Notice the last verse. The last part, it says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of the trouble to come upon people who invade us. So here, in the face of such pain, in the face of such suffering, Habakkuk says, But I trust you. I trust in you. I'm going to wait for your future grace. I trust that it's coming. How does he do this? Think about this. How does he do this when his lips are quivering, he's trembling all over, rottenness has just filled his bones and he feels weak and he says, but yet God, I will trust you. How does that happen? That's what I want to know. That's what I think we need to know because that's often where we're at in this world. So how do we stand firm in that situation when everything is gone and all of life is unraveled? Well, the answer to that is in verses 3 to 15, and that's what we're going to be looking at. And what we're going to see is that Habakkuk, he bridles his minds and his thoughts. You see, so often when anxiety and pain and fear and suffering comes, our thoughts take off like a, like a runaway horse, just jumping and bucking and darting in every single direction, causing damage, being just totally and absolutely uncontrolled. And yet, what needs to happen at that moment? What does that horse need? The horse needs to be bridled. The horse needs to be controlled. And the same is for us. And this is what Habakkuk does here. This is what he demonstrates what it is to live by faith. He's showing us that uh, to live by faith means we must bridle our minds and think rightly about who God is, meaning we must harness our emotions and align them with the truth of his word. And actually, we see this truth lived out all in scripture. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, we actually looked at this passage a couple weeks ago. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, the church there is suffering. The church has been persecuted, and there are members in the church who are saying, I don't know if we can go on. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And so, uh, so the author comes and he says, we need to think rightly about God. So let me read the first few verses of chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, to run with endurance is another way of saying live by faith. But notice how we run. He says that we're to look to Jesus. 
And specifically, he's saying, look back at what Jesus did at the cross. He's saying, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Look at what he did. And notice verse 3, it says, consider him. The word consider actually means to reason with careful deliberation. So the author is saying, think deeply about Jesus right now. Your faith is wavering. So what do you do? I want you to go back to the past grace of Jesus Christ, what he has done for you. And I want you to think about him, his life, and how we live, and how he has demonstrated his grace and love for us. And notice what happens when we do that. It says when we, when we rightly think about Jesus and what he has done for us, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. The way we stand firm is by looking back at God's past grace. Hear this. When suffering comes, when pain comes, when trials comes, that is when we need to rightly think about who God is and what he has done for us. Think about it like this. Uh, God's word is like an anchor for our soul. And the more that we know his word, it's going to hold us in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. And, and the more that we know, the larger that anchor is. This is why God has given us his word. So that we would know him. So that we would see his glory. So that we would trust in him. So that we would know his promises and his might and his power. And so that when suffering comes, when life unravels, we would know that our God is in control and that we can trust in him. So let me ask you, do you hunger for God's word? Do you, do you feast on it regularly? One of the greatest acts of faith you and I can do every single day is by picking up God's word and reading it. That is one of the most powerful things we can do, reading the word and trusting it and obeying it each and every day. Let me just read 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's word is what equips you and teaches you and trains you and corrects you and prepares you for every work that God will bring your way? Does your lifestyle testify to that? Do you know that God's word is a means in which you are equipped for everything that comes your way? Listen, what your family needs, what your spouse needs, what your kids need, what your uh, neighbors need, what, what this world needs of you more than anything else is for you to know this word. It's for you to behold the God of the Bible, that you would know him and love him and trust him and obey him. So I pray that wherever you're at with God's word, that you would um, have a deepening and increasing hunger for his word. And if you're sitting here and you've, you're saying, you know, I haven't really picked up the Bible. I pray that you would pray right now. God, increase my desire and hunger for God's word. And then, you know what? Pick it up and read it. Don't wait for some magical feeling to come into your belly and to make you feel good. The way we live by faith is not necessarily trusting in emotions, but it's by trusting in God's word. And so it's by picking it up, reading and obeying God's word word. For in it, we behold our God. And that's what Habakkuk is going to do for us now. 
as we look at verses 3 to 15. So the first thing that Habakkuk does as he's looking back at all that he knows about God, he thinks about God's glory and his splendor. We see it in verse 3. We read the words Mount. Uh, we read the words Timon and Mount Paran. Now these are mountain ranges in southern Israel that would border Mount Sinai, and so uh, this is cluing us in to most likely what Habakkuk is doing here. In fact, in all of verses three to fifteen, as he's referring back to the Exodus on how God brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them into Mount Sinai, where He revealed Himself to him. In fact. Uh, in verse 4, we'll just kind of make some comments here. In verse 4, we see that his brightness is like rays, uh, is like light and rays flash from his hand. Verse 6, we see the nations, they scatter uh, and the hills sink low. It's as if all of creation bows and bends before this God in his glory. And this is similar language to what we read in Exodus chapter 19, when God has brought Israel to Mount Sinai, we read that in chapter 19, verse 16 of Exodus, that there's thunder and lightning, there's a thick cloud, and on the mountain a loud trumpet blast, so that all the people tremble. And in verse 18 it says, the whole mountain trembles greatly. When we come to chapter 19, what we see is that there is smoke, and there's clouds covering the top of the mountain, and there's Fire everywhere. Lightning is flashing. The mountain is trembling. And the people just fall down before God as they see his glory. Now, it's interesting that we have this right here. I think what, what Habakkuk is wanting us to do is also remember what happened at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, uh, we read about the foolishness of idols. In fact, look at verse 18 and see, we see the idols are speechless. In verse 19, we see there's no breath in them. You see, the idols that have littered the landscape of Jerusalem, they're powerless. They're worthless. The, the idols of Babylon that they worship all their gods, worthless. They have no breath in them. They're not able to act, to work, to do anything. There is nothing in all of creation that is worthy of worship. That is what um, Habakkuk is wanting us to see, that there is no idol that can save. There is nothing in this world that can truly offer us hope. And then we come into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we see creation itself falling down before this God and His glory and His might and His splendor. In verse 5, we read that pestilence and plagues are like his attendants carrying out his will. I mean, just think about that. Uh, when we go back to the Exodus, God used pestilence and plagues to just come and destroy all of Egypt. These things that are totally outside of our control, God uses them for the very means of accomplishing his purposes. Uh, think about how applicable that is right now for COVID-19. I mean, here we are, we're just, we're thinking, man, how do we get our hands around this? How do we wrap our hands and, and control this? And what we realize is we can't control it. And yet when we come to the God's word, we read that COVID-19 and diseases and these things are all under the very might and the power of God accomplishing his purposes. See, when we come to God's word, we say that this God is powerful and there is nothing outside of his control. In fact, when we go into Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, we see what, what makes this God stand out above any other God. 
He speaks. In Genesis 1, God speaks, and what happens? Stuff happens. Creation comes into existence. There's land. There's water. There's light. There's animals and trees and birds. Man is created. He forms him in his image. When we come to God's word, we have a God who acts, who speaks, who reveals himself. He's not deaf, dumb, and mute like every other idol that is in this world. And, and when we come to the Exodus, what we see is that, ex, that Egypt has this pantheon of gods. But through ten plagues, God dismantles and destroys every one of their gods. Showing the worthlessness of them and showing his might and his trustworthiness and that he alone is to be trusted and glorified. You know, that's what happens when we come into God's word. We behold his glory. Think back about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 is this amazing chapter in which the prophet has this vision of God in his throne are on his throne, in his throne room, and there is splendor and majesty, and his robe flows through the temple. And there, there are these angels all around God, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when Isaiah sees this, he just falls down before him and says, Woe is me. He confesses his sin. And then God says, Who will go forth and bring this message that I have? What does Isaiah do? He says, send me. He says, send me. Now, what has compelled Isaiah to take this message and go forth to Israel and proclaim it? And when we look at what this message is, it's a message that Israel is going to reject. It's, an, it's a message that's going to get uh, Isaiah persecuted and tortured and shamed. He's not going to be loved because of this message. So why is he willing to do it? Why is he willing to enter into this shame and suffering? Because he has beheld the glory of his God. And he sees the glory of God far outweighs anything this world can do to him. And he trusts in God. He trusts in his faithfulness. That's what happens when we come into God's Word. That's why I encourage you to know God's Word. And when we move into verses 8 to 15, which is like the second half of chapter 3, we see, uh, we see that God is being pictured as this divine warrior. And we have all this warlike imagery being used. Um, I mean, look at it. In verse 8, we see God is on chariots and horses. In verse 9, God takes out his bow and arrow. In verse 11, lightning seems to be referred to as God's arrows. And in verse 14, God takes the arrows of the enemies and he turns them against themselves. In verse 12, we read that God marches through the earth with this fury and nations are destroyed. Look at verse 13. It says, you crushed the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So what has happened here? What has caused God to just go forth on this rampage? I mean, he's making Goliath look like a little puppet. Here, God, when he acts, the nations and the rivers and the mountains, they're all affected. They all are destroyed and fall down before him. There is nothing that can resist his power and his might. So why? Why is God acting with such anger, with such ferocity? Well, we see that 
in verse 13. Look there. It says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. See, what, what Habakkuk is doing here is he's now thinking about God's fierce love for his people. He first began just looking at the glory and the might of God and how he revealed it within the Exodus. And now he's thinking particularly about his, his fierce love and how he has protected his people and how he loves Israel. You see, Habakkuk, in the face of pain, in the face of suffering, is comforted by the ferocity of God's love for his people. God drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea, destroying them, that he would display his glory and his love for his people. Like, like a strong husband, he will protect his wife from anything that comes her way. And all throughout the Bible, we see this. All throughout the Bible, we see God's faithfulness to his people. We see his love. We see his care. We see his grace. We see his mercy. In fact, it's because of God's great love that we go back to verse 2 in chapter 3. And Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. This is the only request that Habakkuk gives of God in all of chapter 3. Just, just remember mercy. It's because of how fiercely that God has demonstrated his love for his people over the centuries. That now Habakkuk, in the face of suffering, he trusts in God's future grace and says, Okay, God, you're going to bring forth your judgment. I get that. We deserve that. And I know that you're going to do good in it. Just remember mercy. I trust in your grace. I trust in your mercy. I trust in your goodness. I trust that you will remember me. It's as he remembers God's past grace, his faith is strengthened that he would trust in God's future grace. And again, in 539 BC, we see uh, Persia under the rule of King Cyrus will come destroy Babylon and release Israel from exile once again, demonstrating and proving the faithfulness and the love of God. Let me ask you, do you know the love of God? Have you tasted the sweetness of his love? Now, in the Old Testament, the greatest event that demonstrated God's glory and his grace and his love was the Exodus, was when God brought his people out of Egypt. But we know from where we stand in history and from what the Bible tells us that that event was really pointing to an even greater event in which God would display his glory and his love, primarily the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the supreme demonstration of God's love and grace and mercy and faithfulness. In fact, let me read 1 John chapter 4. This is what we read. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our, sin, for our sins. Remember, the word propitiation means to absorb wrath. Jesus came to absorb the wrath that we deserve. He stood in our place that he would take that. So that by trusting in him, by believing in him, 
we would be forgiven and receive the righteousness of God and experience His love and His grace and His mercy. You see, at the cross, God demonstrated His love by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we who believe in Him would be forgiven. The cross of Jesus is the extravagant display of God's glory, of His love, of His wrath, of His faithfulness, of His justice. You know, my grandma, uh, my grandma was a godly woman. And she loved Jesus. She would spend time in God's, in God's Word every single day. She would rise early to worship God, to meditate on His Word, to memorize God's Word. And when you were with her, she just radiated the love of God, the, the beauty of Jesus. You felt like you were in His presence. You know, she was a, she was a, a, a talented cook. Uh, or an incredible cook, a talented painter, uh, and she, she loved just to take care of things around the house. She truly loved and delighted in just taking care of the house and serving uh, not only her kids, but her husband. In fact, one time, as she was doing laundry, I came into the room, and she was ironing my grandpa's underwear. That's what she was doing. So I, I said, Grandma, why? And she, with just a smile on her face, said, I want my man to look good. Like, she loved to serve. And then in the, in the early 2000s, she had a massive stroke that paralyzed her entire, uh, uh, I think it was the left side of the body. And so that, that would put her eventually into a wheelchair. And, and the things that she loved to do, cooking, and painting, and the way that she loved her husband and cared for him, and so many of those things she would no longer be able to do. Serving others would not be as easy as it was. She was in constant pain, and regularly she's, she was depending upon others for every need that she had. But if you were to visit her, if you were to, if you were to talk with her, you would not see pain in her. You would not hear her complaining about life and about difficulty. And it's not that she was being stoic about it. But she would, she would say one thing. And she would say this, remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross, remember the cross. The way she fought discouragement the way she fought trials and pain and suffering and everything that came her way was not by trusting in her strength, was not by trusting in her abilities and her accomplishments, was not trusting in her, her past works, but it was by looking at the past grace of God in Jesus Christ, by remembering the cross. She bridled her thoughts she didn't let her emotions and her, and her thoughts just run wild and rampant, causing destruction and damage, but she bridled them. She harnessed them. She aligned them with the truth of this word. And like Habakkuk, she would, she would trust in the mercies that God would give every day, knowing that because of what God has done at the cross, God would give new mercies each and every day, supplying everything that she needed. The way we stand firm in this world 
in the midst of trials, in pain, in suffering, is by coming to God's Word that we would rightly think about who He is and what He has done for us. And only then will we be able to trust in His future grace. As we remember past grace, we'll be strengthened to remember future grace. We stand firm by reminding ourselves of the unfailing and unwavering love of our God. Hear this, this Bible, this Bible is not just a bunch of stories meaning to entertain us. Rather, this Bible is the means in which God has chosen to reveal who He is, His glory, His might, and His love, and all that He has done for us, primarily the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the grave, that we who believe in Him would have everlasting life. Here's the cross stands in the midst of all of history, declaring God's faithfulness and love for His people. The cross is God's guarantee that He will always work for the good of those who love Him. The cross is the God's guarantee that He will always give mercy. I hope you know that. And so, uh, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would trust in Him today. I pray that you would see the beauty of God in His Word and that everything else in this world, while there are great things, incredible things, beautiful things, but there's nothing worthy of our trust, of our glory, of being honored. There's nothing able to sustain us in the midst of suffering. And there is nothing able to save us from our sins except the grace of God and Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ. Because what he has done at the cross is far greater than anything else that will ever happen in this world. In fact, what we read in God's word is that for all of eternity, we will praise God for his work in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, this is what we read in Revelation 5, 11 and 12. Notice this. It says, Then I looked. And, and real quick. Okay, back up. So this is, a, this is a view of heaven. And so John is given a vision of heaven, seeing what is happening right now in heaven. So if you want to know what's happening right now in heaven and what will happen for all of eternity, this is what's happening in Revelation 5, 11 and 12, it says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. So what's happening in heaven right now? They're praising God for past grace. Jesus will forever be exalted as the Lamb of God. Never, for all of eternity, will we move past God's past grace. Will we ever forget it? But the cross will stand for all of eternity as the very means in which we glorify God. For Jesus has come as the Lamb of God. And so, whatever you're going through, wherever you're at right now, I encourage you to come into God's Word and to trust in Him. Behold the God who has sent His Son, Jesus, so that we who believe in Him would have life, life everlasting, and that we would experience His grace, not only in the forgiveness of our sins, 
but in every moment of our day as he sustains us and strengthens us and transforms us, that we'd be made like him so that that day when Jesus returns, we would have absolute confidence that we will be gathered into his presence for all of eternity. So let us remember the cross. Remember his past grace. Remember the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a beautiful gift that you have given us. God, far greater than anything this world can offer, greater than the riches and diamonds and gold and silver and anything else. For in your word, you have revealed you. And I pray, I pray that for myself, for my family, for the church, for all believers who listen, that we would hunger for your word, that we would love your word, that we would taste your goodness and your word every day. Lord, create in us a hunger, an unending desire for you. And Lord, as we come into your word, may we see your past grace, your glory, your might, your love, the fierceness of your love, that we would have absolute confidence in your future grace, knowing that you will continue to save, you will continue to give grace, you will continue to give mercy. Lord, I pray that whatever people are going through right now, may they come to you in your word, bring comfort to them through your word. May they behold you, may they turn from looking at their, themselves, their accomplishments, their abilities, and may they trust fully in you. May they trust in your grace. May they realize that they have nothing to offer, and by trusting in you, they have everything to gain. Father, you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise. May we never forget your cross, what you have done at the cross, forgetting your grace. Lord, may we remember. Remember the cross. Remember the cross. In your name, Jesus. Amen.